people say, okay, this is the theory, this is the best practice, everything you do besides it is not going to be successful. I always am skeptical of that kind of ideas. And I always want to try things that seem impossible and think out of the box. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Yuteni Gucci is the founder and CEO of TableCheck, a restaurant booking and guest experience platform with more than 7,800 clients worldwide and over 220 Michelin-starred restaurants in their portfolio. Their mission is to help restaurants and hospitality operators connect directly with diners while building guest loyalty and driving revenue. Hi, you. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to get to know you. I've never met you before, and I am really excited to hear about you and your company. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Thanks for having me here today. I think with a lot of founders that I speak to over the podcast, something I'm always curious about are you know, how people's childhoods form them, what were they interested in growing up, and what were their experiences growing up. I think with you, I know that you grew up really shuffling between Singapore and Japan. Could you tell me more about that and your childhood? Sure. I was born in Japan and moved to Singapore at six months old and stayed in Singapore until I turned six. And again, when I was 10, our family moved to Singapore and returned to Japan at the age of 15. And I went to international school in Singapore, so didn't get any Japanese education. The only time I received Japanese education is when I was in Japan for the first time, which is from the age of six to 10. And I think that formed my personality that definitely impacted me, considering that Japanese education is really not about flexibility, nothing about innovation. You just read and memorize all the things that's written in the textbooks, whereas the education in Singapore was almost exactly the opposite. I'll tell you one episode about the history class I had. So using a whole semester, we watched documentaries about John F. Kennedy assassination. And there's like documentaries saying like Lee Harvey Oswald shot the John F. Kennedy. And there's also another documentary saying it was CIA's plot. And another documentary saying it was an alien attacking him, something like that. And at the end of the semester, each of us have to present our own theory and people would debate. We've been watching the same documentary. So like based on the same knowledge, we have to be very logical and unique and persuasive. And there was no written test at all. And people got grazed by just debating each other's theories. So that definitely formed my personality to be very flexible. And it kind of taught me like, you know, I need to think on my own rather than just listen to people or look for answers from other people. But I have to reach my own original answer. I think attending an international school also focuses more on an international perspective on things with a lot of exposure to different cultures and different perspectives as well. At the same time, while you had that experience growing up in an international school, in Singapore, do you think you did enjoy school or do you think you just enjoy the persuasion, learning from different perspectives and all those other things? I enjoyed um, both ways, I think. Education was much better fit than the Japanese style education. Also, I was, I'm a keen person and I'm a curious person. So I wanted to learn from different backgrounds, different cultures. And, you know, in many cases, even People who attend to international schools, they sometimes form groups who come from the same backgrounds. So Japanese people hang around with Japanese people, Korean people with Koreans. I had almost no Japanese friends at the school and hang around with people from different countries. When you hang around with people from like 10 different countries, then they all have different ideas, different ways of thinking. And it was very enjoyable. 
Yeah, I think it's true that there is a sharp contrast. I feel like in from what I've learned about Japanese education, it's a lot about memorization, conforming with whatever's there. And I don't think a lot of foreign students are usually in the local Japanese educational system versus studying in a multicultural environment. You want to be unique or you have to be unique. And, you know, apart from school and apart from that experience, what else did your childhood look like? What were you interested in outside school? Uh, just a normal kid. You know, I was going to theaters, watch movies with my friends on the weekend, chit chat at Starbucks, play PlayStation. Nothing so radically different, I would say. Got it. And I think <laughs> something that caught my eye about your story was that you actually dropped out of high school, which isn't just very different in the lo local Japanese context, but is actually just very unique and very against the grain for any culture at all. Could you share a bit about the thinking behind dropping out of high school? Um, first of all, I'd like to think out of the box and try to challenge common sense or existing theories. And as a child, my parents, they both graduated from universities. They both worked for big enterprise companies. And ever since I was a child, they always taught me that going to a good high school, getting into a good university, working for a big, stable company is the way to become happy. And that was the only solution. And I doubted that because I could see some people like working at construction sites or people didn't get enough education or still making success or looking happy and satisfied with their lives. So I wanted to sort of challenge that theory and dropping out from high school is the worst thing that could happen, according to my parents. And I wanted to prove that even in that scenario, I could still pursue a happy life. Were you always sort of a headstrong and stubborn person or was it just for this sort of decision? I'm very stubborn <laughs> in every aspect. What other sort of stubborn decisions did you make before dropping out of high school? I'm sure this wasn't the first. Um, even in Singapore, there were a few classes I didn't really like or the teachers I didn't really like get along with. And I negotiated that I won't attend the classes, but if I get you know above a certain score at the exam, that they would let me pass. So therefore, I didn't go to any biology class. Still, I scored like 80% on the exam. So the teacher had to say like, okay, you, you get your grade. What would you do if you're not attending the class? Would you just stay at home and play your PlayStation? Um, maybe this is the first question I've been asked. And <laughs> um, <laughs> well, go to Starbucks. Yeah, play PlayStation. Play with fireworks. Yeah, some normal things. What did your parents think of that, though? Not attending the class, but being able to still pass if you did well in the exam. Did they support it? Did they not really mind or were they against it? My father was a really strict person. He didn't like it. My mother was more flexible. She was satisfied as long as I get certain grades. My father is really, really strict. And my mother didn't share this with him, I think. <laughs> okay, I see. Well, after you dropped out of high school, what were your plans for yourself? Did you plan on getting a job immediately? Did you already have a job lined up? What did it look like once you made that decision? I wanted to work and the job didn't really matter. I just wanted to start working and see what it's like to work. And so I applied. I sent my resume to gas stations, to construction sites, to like 20, 30 different companies. and. All of them rejected me. I mean, they can find enough labor who has experience and not at the age of 16. And there was one company which did accept me. And I started working as a salesperson for refurnishing of houses. Like refurnishing yeah. houses, adding furniture into them and like fixing the walls, those, that kind of task. That's it. That's it. So what year was that? And so you're 16. What year was that in Japan? 16. That's... 22 years ago. So 2001, I guess. So when you're sending out these resumes to people, how did you send it to them? Did you fax it? Did you drop it off personally? Did you have to convince them to even take it? Sometimes I send fax. I sometimes visited the actual offices. And what were people's usual response to your resume? 
Lolly had nothing on the <laughs> resume. It just said I dropped out from high school, and people said, "Why don't you go back to high school?" So they still responded, and they just yeah, said to yeah. go back to school. Okay, right, right. So could you tell me what it was like working for the refurnishing company? Ah, again, this is the first time I get this question, but <laughs> um, it was very interesting, exciting. I mean, there were things I didn't obviously know, and you know, most of the things were what I experienced for the first time. And one thing I learned maybe is because sales role is pretty tough and people would quit within two weeks, two months, some quit on the very first day. It was a tough environment. I had to knock on the doors of the houses, like 100 knocks each day. And the salary was based on how much contract you get every month. And sometimes you get paid like $500 only. Sometimes you get, I don't know, let's say $3,000. It was really, really tough. And I managed to stay with the job for one year and nobody stayed that long. So one thing was like, you know, being patient is a virtue. Do you think being stubborn helped you become a good salesperson? Or was there any other tactic used to stay long or to do well at the job? I'm stubborn and I think I'm very confident of myself. Therefore, even there were initially the salary was low, I was pretty confident that I could do better. And looking at the others, they would think that, okay, this is inefficient. I'll find a, another job with a better salary. But yeah, I'm overly confident that I believed in myself that I could make more money. So you just focused on the job and tried to make more money instead of looking at other jobs. That's right. I wanted to master it first and then move on to the next thing. Why did you want to master the sales role? Is there a specific reason why or did you just feel like you wanted to do so? Mm, I just don't like to consider that I quit because I was incapable of doing something. I want to prove that you know I could do it, but not interested anymore. And then what were the hardest days in working in the role? What did they look like? How did you tackle finding 100 houses every day or a week? People would approach to houses with broken walls and they get same kind of sales approach tons of time. But then nobody actually goes up to a pretty new, nice looking houses because it doesn't look like they need any refurnishing. So they don't get any approaches from the salespeople. But then one out of, let's say, like, you know, 50 houses, these nice looking houses, they sometimes need refurnishing because maybe the family didn't like the color of the wall and they want to repaint it with a different color. So it was like I was approaching after the houses, which looked like there was no demand. And it seemed like nobody was doing that. So I was generating more revenue than others. How did you figure that out? I figured that out. Um, I thought it was impossible to sell something to houses which get 100 sales rep visiting them every week. It was simply annoying. And I knew what it was like to get salespeople ringing your doorbell on a Saturday morning or Friday night. Therefore, I just experimented visiting the houses, like new houses, which looked like there was no demand. So it was sort of like experiment. Yeah, again, this is like, you know, people say, okay, this is the theory. This is the best practice. Everything you do besides it is not going to be successful. I always am skeptical of that kind of ideas. And I always want to try things that seem impossible and think out of box. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Was the influence for thinking outside of the box like this mainly your education or were your parents also like this as well? Hmm. Good question. I guess it's definitely not my father's blood. My mother is pretty flexible and she's kind of unique. So I guess it's in my blood. And as well as, you know, in addition to that, the education I had in Singapore definitely impacted. I think after your refurnishing company, you moved on to join a credit card company, right? How did that job begin? So again, um, I went to university at the age of 20 and decided to drop out at the age of 22. And so again, I had to send my resume to, you know, Grand Hyatt or restaurants, various companies I could think of, real estate company. And again, I applied to 30 to 40 jobs and got rejected from all of them. 
but there was only one company which accepted and that was the credit card company the boss who interviewed me he was very unique because he thought it was interesting that i dropped out from both high school and university in the interview i was very unique as well i pointed out all these misspells typos on their website etc and yeah i was lucky to meet him because otherwise i don't think normal companies wouldn't hire somebody who's dropped out from high school and university and has almost zero experience of working right and then so you started working at the credit card company how did that go so i joined as a sales rep and soon after i realized that i know nothing about how to run business how to run a company it was all greek to me when i talked with you know finance team or accounting team it was all new to me when i spoke with people from legal team and then i decided to study business so i went to the bookstore and bought you know mba textbooks and started studying on my own and then soon after i realized that the legal team is not so competent and that i could do it myself and soon after i realized that financing team wasn't really superb and then so i decided to negotiate with the company that i want to become the head of sales and this was about like you know 8 months after joining and obviously they didn't give me the title but it was obvious i prepared a powerpoint explaining that how much i contributed to the company that 80% of revenue was coming from me and so the company decided to give me a title business development then ma- manager of business development and um i had no one on my team it was just me <laughs> but then now they gave me this business development it was like i could do anything so i started visiting the us headquarters with the then ceo of japanese office and started reporting quarterly results and then soon after i was preparing all these materials to report to the headquarters and so i told the then ceo that he didn't need to come with me that i could do it myself what did he say Yeah he said like okay that's fine cool cool you know because even in the meetings when he's asked questions he would just ask all the questions back to me and it was just me talking doing the talking so and then so soon after i um negotiated with the US headquarters explaining that the current CEO is not competent and also like it was a joint venture with a Japanese company so i proposed them that we buy back the shares from the Japanese joint venture and that I be assigned as a CEO. And how old were you at the time? 23. So you've been at the company for maybe a year or two? Right, a year and a year and a half something like that. And then what was the response to the proposal? I think it is a a very sharp proposal. <laughs> yes, it was discussed at the board meeting and they came back to me and said, "Okay, we understand what you're saying, but you have to be patient. We'll give us 2 years." and you know this will become true and i was not patient at that time and i also knew that i was already capable of doing it so i decided to leave the company then after you left the credit card company what did you do next so i met two guys when i was working at the credit card company and they were about to start a groupon like business in japan and they asked me whether i could join them as a head of sales but then i did my own study and did a research on the groupon business model and i thought that the business model was corrupt and there were many better ways to actually execute their business and so i went back to them and said okay if you assign me as ceo i will join your company and then how did they respond i think they waited for like 2 weeks I assume they discussed it amongst the founders and they said okay that's fine like you can join our company and after 6 months we'll assign you as CEO so I joined the company then what happened next this is a disaster <laughs> <laughs> without consulting me they raised finance from a venture capital and gave away 51% and that was that they were just starting out they already gave away 51% right right The contract was already signed when I joined and I couldn't stop it. And then how did you find out? They shared it when it was actually executed. And then you had already joined by that time and then what did you plan to do next? Ah, uh, although it was I was young and I didn't really understand what it meant to give away 51% 
of shares to a venture capital. I worked hard. I was in charge of almost everything because I was the only Japanese in the company. Yet we were doing business in Japan. We were approaching restaurants, beauty salons, etc., who only speak Japanese. So I had to do interviews, recruit people. We hired 110 people in eight months. In eight and months? And I was in charge of... In eight months, wow, yes. Okay. I, I was doing interviews, like, you know, four interviews every morning from 7 a.m. to 7.30, the first person, the second person, 7.30 to 8, then 8 to 8.30, then 9. Then 9.30, my first meeting start with the clients. So you're also managing 110 employees because your team members probably can't speak Japanese. <laughs> right, right. So like I was in charge of support. I was in charge of sales. I was, uh, you know, hiring yeah, basically everything besides tech. Were you happy with the setup? Mm, it was very energetic, chaotic. It was exciting. You know, they let me do many things, and which was very, very good for me because I could learn from my experiences. At the same time, the management level decisions, I was not happy with like strategies or higher level decisions being made by the VCs and the former founders. You know, the VCs started sending in people on the board and they replaced the CEO. They eventually replaced everybody who founded the company. It was all with people from VC backgrounds running the company, designing the business strategies. And it was obvious it was not working. And I was very frustrated. I negotiated with them that they should assign me as CEO and change the strategy. And they rejected. So after that, I started to plan an MBO, management buyout. We wanted to buy back the shares from the VCs and started looking for sponsors who would invest in our new business plan. But that didn't work out. So I decided to found my, my own company. How long were you at that startup? Um, Like 10 months. Okay. A lot happened in those 10 months then. <laughs> a lot, a lot. <laughs> well, you founded your own company in 2011, right? How did mm -hmm. that come to be? When you left the startup, did you already have an idea? Um... Initially, because I love going to restaurants and eating or even cooking for myself, I wanted to do something in the restaurant industry. And also, I was thinking of something to do with marketing, helping restaurants get more customers at a lower cost compared with existing services, other services. And while I was working for the startup, I already on paper founded my company and invited few people at the startup who were about to get laid off to join my company. I prepared the company on paper and I had like few initial members on board, but didn't really have a solid business plan. We were just discussing like, you know, oh, what should the business be? You know, there was no spreadsheet which was valid to be presented to the investors. We were just talking about various ideas at Starbucks. So what did the first one month look like since leaving and starting the company on paper? So we initially needed capital and I started uh, approaching to angel investors. Luckily, we were able to raise some finance and we were able to live for like operate for six months or so. And during that time, we started selling almost anything to the restaurants. And, you know, I can code myself some HTML and CSS. So... We made websites for the restaurants. We also worked as a reseller for one of a online restaurant reservation service. Are you familiar with the term OTA? Yes. We worked as a reseller for one of the OTAs in Japan. And we visited the restaurants saying like, okay, why don't you start accepting online reservations? It's very convenient. You can get more customers than now. But you have to pay the cover fee, which is 8% of the reserved course menu item. And um, that we did for, I think, one year or so. It didn't get anywhere, actually. <laughs> we learned many things from the restaurants by doing this reseller thing because the restaurants would tell us what they think about online reservations or what they think about the cost of acquiring new customers, what they think of you know, managing online reservation is a pain if they're managing reservations with paper and pencil. And that gave us a lot of insight to what the restaurant is looking for, what kind of you know demands there are in the market or how the market would evolve. So it was a good thing, but then the company was going nowhere. We had the idea of building the current business model, but 
we had no IT, we had no engineer. It was just me and with three sales reps. So yeah, at one point I told them that, you know, we were getting nowhere and that, you know, we really need tech. We really need a CTO and we don't have the budget to hire sales reps plus CTO. So it would be better for them to look out for new opportunities and change job. Then what happened after that? So eventually everybody left and I was the only person left in the company. And there, at the time I was looking for a CTO, I consulted many people. And my friend I met in Singapore introduced me to John Shields, who is our CTO. So we have a mutual friend. He said he was looking for a job or he was considering of starting his own company. And so we sat down together, went to dinner for four, five nights. Luckily, he was very interested in the initial business model I had in on my mind. And so he decided to join TableCheck. So you said after one year, you felt like it wasn't going anywhere. How did you know it was time to give up? Was it because you're running out of money or were there other signs? Um, didn't really give up, actually. I could have shut down my company and restarted, but I didn't change my scope of business, which was to help the restaurants and create a better dining experience for everybody. Okay. The only reason why we couldn't raise finance was, I mean, there's two reasons, I guess. One is we didn't have CTO. And two is that people didn't believe that the online reservation will become the standard in the future for restaurants, which is surprising because when I was working for a credit card company and I visited the US headquarters, I tried to make a reservation for a restaurant in San Francisco and I called them up on phone. And then the restaurant staff would say, how can I help you? And I say, I want to make a reservation. And the restaurant staff is like confused. Like you can make an online reservation on our website. <laughs> Why are you calling me? <laughs> but back then in Japan, there was no OTA. There was no service which provided online reservation for restaurants. So even when I started my own company, even when I started Table Check, there was only one or two OTA which provided online reservation for restaurants. So the VCs didn't believe in our idea that everybody's going to be making online reservations in the near future. Got it. So it wasn't necessarily giving up. It was more of changing, I guess, the initial business model and trying to look for a CTO. Right. Exactly. Because if I can find a CTO, the first problem is solved. And the second problem that people not believing that online reservation will become standard is obviously going to change sometime. And why do you pick restaurants? So are you passionate about food? Yes, I am. Um, so the boss at the credit card processing company, he was a foodie himself. And he took me to nice restaurants, luxury restaurants. And I was very, very amazed with the quality of the food, the service, the atmosphere, everything. And so I became like a big fan of restaurants and started visiting restaurants all the time when I have time. Right. And, you know, having worked in the food industry for like 10 years, I guess, how has your approach to food changed? Is what you're interested in when you're having a meal different now versus what you were interested in before? Or do you appreciate the same things? The way I look at restaurants, how I enjoy it hasn't changed. And I still enjoy, you know, every minute I spend at restaurants. Initially, I didn't really think about this, but the restaurant is going to be very important for the Japanese economy because now the country has to depend on the inbound tourists for the economy to maintain or grow. And the top reasons why people visit Japan is for shopping and for food. So it's really important that we bridge the restaurants and diners and um, provide better dining experience right from the start, from the reservation process. And with Table Check at its stage now, could you introduce us to what the business model is like? How would you introduce it to us at this stage after all the changes in the business model? Yeah, so we call ourselves a restaurant booking and guest experience platform. The company was founded in 2011 in Japan, and my role as a CEO is to steer the company to become the number one hospitality and restaurant reservation platform in the world. So our goal is to remain to have a top market share in Japan while expanding in global markets like in China, Southeast Asia, the Middle East, etc. Does that do? Yeah, totally. <laughs> and I think something that really shocked me when I first came across Table Check was that I was in Japan, but actually 
targets a global market. So you have operations here in Southeast Asia, you have operations all over the world. I think that's pretty rare for a Japanese company. While I focus more on Southeast Asia for my work, I have barely seen any Japanese companies, especially Japanese startups that really target a global market. Exactly. So what, what, one of our mentors, former Sony CEO, Idei Nobuyuki-san, who unfortunately passed away last year, he had the same vision and passion that if you're doing a business, you know, you have to become number one in the world and not be satisfied with just being number one in Japan. I was very much inspired by that way of thinking. And as a child, I grew up in Singapore. I worked for a US-based company. And I could see that clearly Japan is weakening. Because when I was in Singapore, maybe you don't know, but there was a device called Discman. Like I Walkman think, is for I think cassette. I've seen it. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Discman. This Sony Discman. Having that would make you a hero in the class. <laughs> really? Really, really. And PlayStation, everybody wanted PlayStation, Sega Saturn. Now, like, you know, nobody has Sony products. Obviously, there's no tech company that is globally used. As a Japanese, I really want to contribute to the nation, to the country, and lighten up people and help people open their eyes and look out for opportunities outside of Japan and aim high. So I really want to become like a role model where a Japanese startup in the tech area become like a global standard, even in the niche market. So that people realize that, oh, we can actually do this. And it sounds much more fun and exciting. I think another thing that caught my eye about Table Check was that a lot of your clients are actually really big clients, some of the best like hotels, resorts, um, and restaurants in the world. I don't know the stats myself, but how many restaurants do you guys handle and how many countries are you guys available in right now? Okay. So we have more than 7,800 clients worldwide and more than 220 Michelin star restaurants in our portfolio. And how many countries do you guys operate in? We have offices in uh, eight different countries and our clients are distributed amongst 32 different countries. What's the most difficult part about being a company that operates globally? Because I know that with restaurants, everything is really distinct in terms of culture and style and design, right? So I'm sure that makes it infinitely more difficult. Right. As a company, obviously there's pros and cons. So the diversity brings us realize that there are many good ideas from different backgrounds. At the same time, it's really difficult to treat people fairly because some people think that in their culture, you know, it's not fair. And um, it's also very expensive. If you consider of the administrative costs, you have to check, you know, related regulations in different markets, GDPR, if it's Japan, it's like privacy policy law. It's a big challenge. It's also infrastructure wise, also expensive. If you imagine the mainland China, they have a you know great firewall. We have to get around it. It's a big challenge at the same time. The market is huge and it's really, I don't know, like for me, accomplishing something that seems impossible gives me the joy. Right. And I'm really curious, like, so did you first launch in Japan and then expand across Asia? How did you approach sort of global expansion? Um, we started in Japan and our initial strategy was to expand from Japan um, using our you know, client base in Japan. Because if we were able to close Hilton, Hyatt, Intercontinental in Japan, then it would obviously be persuasive for Hilton, Hyatt, Intercontinental in other markets to start using us. And how did you even close Michelin star restaurants and five-star hotels? How did you start tackling them? Were they part of your first set of customers? Did it only come in two years later? You mentioned that the restaurant is very local business and it's fragmented. I agree with that. At the same time, how people visit restaurants or how they make reservation is pretty much the same throughout the world. And therefore, we targeted global hotel brands so that they have the world standard system already. So we did a research and most of them were using open table or rest pack. And so we did a very, very deep research of how those systems were working, where the restaurants had the pain points with those systems. And I interviewed at least 2000 restaurants using those systems of what would be their ideal system 
if it was not open table RESPAC. And therefore, we were at the kind of standard where we could replace open table and RESPAC, which means that we've reached to the global standard. And we've started selling to the restaurants in Japan, but we already had a product that was competitive in the world. Got it. What did your first customers look like and how long did it take to get your first customer since you started the company? Paying customers um, because we initially started offering it for free. And um, our initial customers, actually the first paying customers were customers who switched to our system from OpenTable. I still cannot believe they made that decision because at the time, OpenTable was a much better system. And I guess you guys are very good at convincing them. But how long did it take since you, I guess, launched the new platform for them to switch to becoming like a paid customer, like from the moment that you made the software live? So John started coding in early 2013. And I think the first revenue we had was in 2014. So roughly it took 12 months to reach a level where the margin would be actually paying. And... I guess, what was your most fond memory from trying to grow the business? Was there a specific client or a specific milestone that made you proudest? I guess closing Hilton would be that because it gave, opened our, you know, opened the gate to other global hotel brands like IHG and Hyatt. So was that Hilton your first big client among, you know, five-star hotels? That's correct. How about Michelin star restaurants? How did you start tackling them? Was that after Hilton or before? We tackled both targets at the same time. And Michelin star restaurants is a little bit easier because you can actually visit them as a customer. And, you know, they cannot treat the customers badly. So they would, <laughs> you know, listen to our stories. Whereas if you did a cold calling, they wouldn't listen to you. But if it's a sushi place, for instance, you can sit in front of the chef for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I guess with table check, what do you feel like were your most difficult moments in the first one to two years of starting it since 2013, starting the new platform? Mm, many things, but I think raising finance. How did you approach raising money? You already came from a startup where you knew that they already gave up 51% early on. So how did you approach fundraising for the first time? So I learned that you can never, ever give over 51% to a venture capital. So decided to sell some shares and um, we kind of like, you know, had a, like a table where we kind of projected how much capital we need at what stage, at what timing, and how many percentage we can give away and calculate the valuation, you know, backwards. But it didn't work out. <laughs> I mean, you know, like you, you're always running out of your cash, you know, you're in a weaker position to negotiate with the VCs. So we had to get loans from banks. And I had to ask my parents to give me some loans. I had to visit my grandfather to discuss like, you know, some, you know, lend me some money and stuff like that. So it didn't really work out as planned, but luckily enough, we still have, you know, 50% of the shares and reached to a point where we can turn profitable anytime. Hey, that's great. I want to know who are your first few investors and how did you get to meet them? Idei Nobuyuki-san. Idei-san is the former CEO of Sony. I knew him from when I was trying to buy back the shares from the VC at the startup I helped. I consulted Idei-san's investment company, whether they would be supportive of buying back the shares and allow me to steer the wheel of that startup. At the time, he said no. But then after I founded my own company and visited him again, he said, now it's your company, I'll support you. And so it was very lucky that I joined the startup company, which didn't work out. But then it brought me to Idei-san, who was a very good sponsor, both in financially and also mentally. I would visit him from time to time and he would give me advice from a very, very experienced position. So without him, you know, we wouldn't be here today. So I'm very, very thankful for Idei-san's sponsorship. What do you think is the biggest lesson that you learned from him? Think big. 
<laughs> he didn't like the he didn't like the name of table check. He said oh, it's not so cool. Like, can you come <laughs> up with something like Walkman? <laughs> and you know, since he started in Japan, I feel like the Japanese market is also very unique. How did you approach growing in Japan, and how did that differ when you stopped growing in Japan and started looking at other markets? What approaches were definitely very very different and unique to Japan?、Mm. Sales approach wise is not so different. Product UI UX design is very different. If you look at Japanese websites such as I don't want to name this, but Rakuten, <laughs>、uh, the design is the, the website looks really really messy. And if you compare it with the website of Apple, it's pretty obvious that you know Japanese people have different preferences for designs. Or and actually, the uniqueness of Japan is something like、uh, there's an example. Okay, so. We interviewed the restaurants using Open Table. What do you want to change about Open Table? And they would say, "Okay, we can print out the reservation list with customer names, but then it doesn't have Mister or Mrs. in front of the customer's name." And、um, in Japanese, we call it Sama. You put Sama after people's names. And obviously, Open Table wasn't able to print Sama, and that was the only reason they switched to us. We said like, okay, we can print that out. That's easy. It's just a kanji, you know, double byte character. Why do you think that Open Table couldn't provide that?、Um, because their business is too big in the United States. So if they wanted to invest, let's say, a million dollars and gain like you know two million dollars in return from Japanese market, meanwhile they can invest one million in the U.S. market and get let's say fifty million dollars return. Okay, that's fair. So that's just one example of how you localized it, but. Even if it was as simple as adding those two kanji, it actually made that much of an impact. Yes, yes, yes.、Mm. It's very surprising. They guaranteed me that they would switch to us if we implemented that function, and they actually did. What other very local things to Japan did you use in terms of, like, I don't know, building the product or growing uh-huh, the business? Uh-huh.、Um, one aspect would be that overseas restaurants prefer to automate everything. Whereas in Japan, people want to do it manually. So one example is the restaurant staff can access our admin page, and then they can enter the date, time, and number of people, and then select a table where to assign that reservation. In Japan, this is acceptable. In some overseas restaurants, said, "Why do you allow the restaurant staff to select a table? The restaurant staffs make mistakes. They might choose a table which is inefficient." Therefore, the system should allocate the appropriate table automatically, and not allow the restaurant staff to manually select a table. So this is exactly the opposite. We kind of had the automated table assignment in Japan initially, but then the restaurants always said that, "Oh, we need to manually assign a table because we don't believe that the system can assign an appropriate table." Got it. And so you mentioned that Open Table couldn't really. Well, capture the Japanese market and the customers that you're capturing because they couldn't localize it enough, just because it doesn't make sense to invest that much into Japan. But I guess in contrast, you guys are now also targeting a global market. How do you properly localize them to the markets that you are expanding to? I think it's a very difficult decision because it's like chicken and eggs. You have to invest in order to get more revenue. But you don't want to invest in a market where the revenue is small, where the return is small compared to. When you invested in Japan for the Japanese merchants, but you know our mission is to become global platform for the dining experiences. So our only option is to keep investing. Got it. And apart from that, like, how did you approach expanding to Southeast Asia? I think most of the people that read Backscoop and listen to this podcast are based in Southeast Asia. Is there anything you can share about expanding to the market here and what you've learned from the region? Southeast Asia、mm, is, as I mentioned, how people use restaurants, how they make reservations to restaurants is not so different. But it's more, for instance, Singapore. More and more people are using Google Reserve, so I guess the people are searching for restaurants on Google more than on other OTAs like Chope. So the consumer behavior is pretty different, but our value doesn't really get affected by that. We want to help the restaurants obtain more diners through their own platform, through their own website, or through the channels where they are not 
being charged cover fees. So OTAs all you know charge cover fees to the restaurants, and it's a common requirement that the restaurants are looking for other means to get reservations through free channels, and that's where we help. From business perspective, well, we look similar, <laughs> and um, the time zone difference is another big factor because we do have a support team, and if our support team can speak English, we don't need to set up new support team in various markets. Whereas, if we wanted to enter markets with completely different time zone, we will need a new support team. And you've been running the company for over ten years at this point, but. Again, you dropped out of high school. You didn't really go to university. You dropped out as well, and you had only worked about three different jobs before running Table Check. So, how have you gained the skills to be the CEO you are today, and how did you scale yourself? Because I'm sure it's very difficult not just to expand to the scale you are today, but especially to expand globally and run a global business. Well, first of all, you have to be very smart <laughs> and very confident, and work really hard. As I mentioned, when I was working for the credit card company, initially I knew nothing about legal, nothing about accounting, nothing about financing. But then there's many textbooks where you can learn from, and you can learn from every experience. And if you work twice harder than other people, you grow twice faster. What do you feel like were the most difficult times that you've had in the process of building the company? Well, again, when the balance is about to go to zero. <laughs> And how do you manage that? Besides that, actually,、um, maybe it was when we didn't have CTO. That was the toughest moment, I guess. I was very, very, I was confident, but at the same time, I was very concerned. What if we weren't able to hire a CTO? What if we run out of cash before we find a good CTO? And how do you manage the stress of being a founder and the weight of all of the, you know, the people that you manage and the company that you run? Um, go eat good food <laughs> <laughs> and some tequila. What is your favorite restaurant to go to when you're having a not so good work day, or favorite meal?、Mm, my favorite meal is definitely sushi. Is there a specific kind of sushi? Well, almost any sushi. Yeah. And you said to be who you are today, you had to work really hard. But you know there are always different definitions of working hard. What did working hard look like for you, and what are the personal sacrifices you had to make to get to where you are today? Ah,、uh, personal sacrifice. There's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay, first of all, I was working at a credit card company, and the job starts at 9 a.m. and ends at 8 p.m. I would go to the office from 6 a.m. and spend three hours studying, and then after I finished working at 8 p.m. I would stay in the office until twelve midnight, so another four hours of studying. That's seven hours a day, and on the weekend, I usually spend at least ten hours a day on studying. So that's twenty hours on the weekend in total. And the personal sacrifices. There's many sacrifices. Like you know, you go home and you see your daughter talk for the first time, and you want to share the joy with your wife. And the wife says, "No, she's been talking for the past one week." And、um, it's like you've missed all that thing. And how do you manage the business now? And how has that evolved since you started the company? Are there any new approaches that you've learned in the process of these ten years that you now, I guess, swear by? Initially,、um, you know, you have to work on everything. You have to do HR. You have to do financing. You have to do accounting. Everything. You have to do sales. Now that we are working at a much larger scale. People are designated for certain roles. It's been working, but then at the same time, I started to think that we are at too much of a comfort zone, and that we're not making small failures. And we should be more experimental and be challenging on new things, new ideas. What if we assign this very young person as a head of whatever department and see how it goes? And it could fail, but you know, learn from the failures. And we're making too few failures recently. That's one thing I'm feeling these days. So I've announced to the、um, management members that we should not be so afraid of making small mistakes, but be challenging and be more innovative in order to grow to a much larger scale. And you said you think out of the box, and you have a few different approaches. Is there anything you do in your company that you would consider very out of the box in the way that you run it? Um, 
very unique. I don't know, like um, Japanese people, for instance, especially for the Japanese employees, they are used to calling people with the family name plus the title. So people would call me Taniguchi CEO usually. But then I've made it a rule that we have to call each other by the first name, which is very rare for a Japanese company to do. And also, of course, we have the org chart, but you know, communication-wise, we have to be ultimately flat. So anybody can comment or advise or ask questions to anybody. So no matter how young you are or how junior you are, if you have comments or you know suggestions for me or to your boss or to your different team members, then people should not be afraid to do that. And now 10 years into running the company, what does your day-to-day actually look like at this scale? Every day is different. Every day we have, you know, small troubles. And, you know, right now I'm working on raising finance and uh, building up HR team, reforming back office team. And also I continue to visit the restaurants and hold face-to-face meetings. So at least once a week, I visit the restaurants for sales meetings and um, to obtain in-depth understanding of how the market is evolving how the restaurants are changing, how are they unsatisfied with our product or existing other competitor products or what they think the future would look like, et cetera. And you said that you wanted to drop out of high school to prove to your parents that you didn't have to follow the typical route for success to be happy, which is go to a good high school, good college and get a good job at a big company. Would you say you're happy now? And what moments are you happy? Yes. Um, I'm happy every moment, actually. <laughs> you know, every time people ask me, when is your happiest moment in life? For me, it's always now, present. But, you know, I wanted to prove to my parents that they were wrong. I would assume that my father is still skeptical. Until now. No, uh, uh, no, 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 no. I mean, th- he would always be skeptical. He's oh. a stubborn person. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I've learned a lot from you in this process of this whole chat and getting to know you, but For every podcast episode that I record with somebody, I always ask the same question to wrap up. And that is outside of work, what is one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life? Whether that's something you want to achieve this week, this month, in the next five years, or even in the next 10 years, whatever it may be and whenever, what is the first thing that comes to mind? Um, I'm not sure if this is completely unrelated to business, but my personal goal is to be I would be on the MBA textbook of success role model as the first Japanese company, IT company to become global standard. And which MBA textbook? Like any or do you have every, 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 every textbook? Yes. <laughs> and why does this matter to you? Well, first of all, I'm Japanese and I want to see my country be energetic and be more respected and more powerful in the future. Well, thank you so much, you. I learned so much from you today and really enjoyed meeting you. Thank you. You, you asked me many questions, which <laughs> I didn't even expect. <laughs> I enjoyed hearing the answers and I'm sure this won't be the last time we chat. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.